listening to the AT Tapes, a podcast from the Journal of Athletic Training. The goal of this podcast is to interview researchers and clinicians on current topics facing athletic trainers and discuss how we can utilize best practices to improve patient outcomes. My name is Lizzie Hibbard, and I will be the host for this podcast. I am a faculty member in the athletic training program at the University of Alabama, and I have a research interest in shoulder and elbow injury prevention in youth overhead athletes. You can follow me on Twitter at EE Hibbard. Before getting started on today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that all content from JAT is open access, meaning it's free of charge to all readers thanks to funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. This month, the Journal of Athletic Training released a special thematic issue on training load and recovery monitoring and management. The importance of assessing training load and recovery in determining one's risk of injury is an evolving area in which athletic trainers play a vital role. This thematic issue includes concept papers that evaluate the role of using training load metrics for injury prevention and new research on training load, injury, and injury prevention. In today's episode, we have Dr. Darren Padua from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and Dr. Jimmy Anotti from The the Ohio State University. Um, Darren and Jimmy are associate editors of the Journal of Athletic Training and were the co-editors of this special issue. So before we get started with the interview, I do want to introduce the guests. So we'll start with Darren. Um, Darren is a professor and chair in the Department of Exercise and Sports Science at the University of Chapel Hill, and as a fun fact, was the program director when I was a student in the athletic training program at UNC. Um, His primary research interests focus on understanding factors that influence knee stability, identification of risk factors associated with knee injury, identification of evidence-based prevention strategies for for knee injury, and validation of performance enhancement training techniques. So Darren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lizzie. Happy to be here. Um, So will you start out by telling us a little bit about your educational background and how you got into the position that you're currently in? Sure. Um, Well, I've been here at UNC in the Department of Exercise and Sports Science since 2001. So this is my 20th year on faculty. And not a little fun fact about me and Jimmy is that we were actually grad students together at UNC in the master's program and actually worked men's lacrosse as a athletic training master students together. So we go back uh, quite some ways and I guess that's probably like 1996 or something like that, that we were working together. Um, But I was lucky after I finished up my my PhD at UVA in 2001 to have been able to join the faculty at at UNC. I started up, as you mentioned, as our our program director in the athletic training program. Um, And then for the last, I guess, seven years now, um, have been working as department chair here in exercise and sports science. So why did you become an athletic trainer all those years ago? Well, you know, when I got uh, got to college, I really didn't have a lot of background as to what athletic training was at that time. There wasn't an athletic trainer in my high school, so I'd never really been formally introduced to one up to that point in time. But there was a an elective class I took my freshman year called Intro to Sports Medicine. And in that class, they introduced the, the profession of athletic training. And I thought that was intriguing um, with the kind of combination of, of sport and medicine. 
which is something that I think attracts a lot of students. And so the, the following semester, I volunteered for an observer program um, and had the opportunity to see firsthand, you know, what it was like to, to be a uh, athletic training student at that point in time and decided it was something that was really appealing to me to be able to work hands-on with individuals and take what I was learning from the classroom and apply it directly uh, during my clinical rotations. I thought was uh, something that would really appeal to me and made the decision to, to major in athletic training and uh, have never looked back and enjoyed the, the pathway up to this point in time. So now I'll introduce Jimmy. Um, Jimmy is an associate professor and the athletic training program director in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences in the College of Medicine at The Ohio State University. His main research focus lies in developing functional motion assessment research that bridges the gap across research to clinical systems to allow for evidence-based outcomes for aiding individuals to sustain optimal health and performance throughout their careers and lives. Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. So Lizzie, thank you. Uh, I was listening to the introduction. I was like, oh, that sounds pretty good. Um, the, for me, the background was uh, very interesting. So I was a high school sophomore. I still vividly remember this, sitting in a high school class and having career day where people used to come in from different careers and a uh, gentleman from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, an engineering school just up the road from my hometown, uh, Anthony Ortolano. Anthony is a uh, New York State Hall of Famer, uh, athletic trainer for years, um, kind of described his day to me. And uh, I, I was absolutely fascinated by it. I still didn't know what an athletic trainer was. I was just thinking this is something sports medicine, and I really like that. I like sports, and I like the medicine side of things. Um, and so that kind of got me started. I went on a couple of different pathways in college, playing baseball and doing some other things. And, and it's funny, uh, almost 30 years later, uh, I'm still doing all those different things. Uh, but I, I went to um, undergrad University of Florida, and then I uh, did my master's and my PhD at University of North Carolina. Um, some great people at both places and University of North Carolina where Darren and I met um, it really kind of established a, a brand new world for me from everything from clinical to education to research and uh, been doing that life for a little while now. And it's uh, been a great journey and I, and I look forward to continuing it. Thank you for uh, introducing yourself and for both of you guys for being here. Um, we are looking forward to both your uh, expertise as researchers and also um, as editors of this issue. So can you guys tell us a little bit about um, where the idea for this special thematic issue came from and sort of the process of that it went through and putting it together? Sure. Um, really, the, the idea, as I recall, came from our editor-in-chief, Jay Hurdle. Um, Jimmy and I were at a meeting and, and Jay pulled us aside and said, you know, he had this idea for a, a special issue around the concept related to, to training load as it was a emerging topic that we're seeing uh, more and more publications come out around uh, this idea of training load and its relationship to injury um, and thought it would be something really uh, interesting to try to pull together a special issue around. And so that was really the, the concept itself. And, you know, uh, Jay was great in allowing both Jimmy and I to have some creative license to think about what different directions that we would want to try and, and take this. So we, you know, each individually thought about different aspects um, and topics that would relate to this, you know, uh, broad area of, of training load and, and injury. And, you know, each of us, you know, thought of different um, 
authors that might be great to solicit for more clinical commentary style uh, articles, but then also what would be some original research articles that could also be published around this, this central theme. And we kind of work together to, to identify our collective group of uh, folks we'd wanted to invite and then try to solicit uh, ideas for original research manuscripts uh, related to this theme of you know, training load and recovery and how it relates back to injury. So at the beginning of every episode, I try to define the terminology or have the speakers define the terminology, because I think that that's one important thing to make sure we're kind of all talking the same language. So just in reviewing the issue, just uh, I had identified if maybe if you guys could define training load, um, recovery monitoring and recovery management um, as kind of the ones that I, I had identified. And if there's other terminology that you guys as experts in the area feel like people interchange or use inappropriately, um, if you guys could kind of hit on this. Well, when I think of internal training load, I think more of that's how an individual responds to the workload that they're actually performing. So, you know, a a simple example might be someone's uh, rating a perceived exertion after, you know, conducting some level of training or perhaps maybe even like a heart rate measurement. So it's more this kind of physiological response or perceptual response to conducting some type of physical workload, whereas external training load is trying to quantify in some way, shape, or form the actual physical workload that the individual has performed. And that could be in a number of different forms. You could be, you know, using GPS to uh, measure how far a person traveled or how fast they were running, or maybe even something like a pitch count when looking at a sport like baseball could be examples of external training load. And then recovery monitoring is really other things um, that go along with measuring that person's response to the physical workload that they um, have performed. And it could be like a, a wellness type of you know, survey that you'll see some individuals begin to incorporate. And then the management piece is really trying to take all this information about the physical workload, how they're responding from either a physiological perceptual uh, standpoint, how they're perceiving their their health and wellness, and then using that to try and direct uh, patient care to optimize recovery and hopefully improve performance. And in doing those things, minimize risk of injury. Yeah. I mean, just to add a little bit to those things, I mean, you you know, a lot of people get caught up into one area of uh, workload monitoring or one area of recovery whether that be they have a physiological background or a biomechanical background or a psychological background, and they kind of stick in that area. Um, I think one of the things to, you know, to look at these definitions is that they're, they're broad across those pieces. Um, you know, Darren said the internal and external workload. Uh, what we have to think about as clinicians is uh, there's a variety that goes into this. We tend to stick with what we are familiar with, So all of us have a biomechanical background. So things of that nature uh, are are a little bit easier for us to understand. And when we start thinking about some of the the psychological or the the, uh, uh, physiological pieces, they're a little bit different for us. So I think one of the big things on those definitions is really just, you know, what are some of the demands that are being placed on individuals and what are some of the uh, processes to monitor those demands and to uh, evaluate what impact those demands have on the quote-unquote human system. So thank you for giving us that overview of how this issue is put together and some of the terminology. So the next set of questions I'm going to ask you are really, really big, broad questions, um, really kind of summarizing the issue. 
So usually on the podcast, we're focusing on one uh, one article. And so this will be a, an interesting experience for you all um, of really summarizing a lot of great information. And so as they're summarizing the information, they may um, uh, specifically reference some of the articles that are um, available that are linked in the show notes for this. So um, they'll also be kind of pointing you in the direction of, of your own self-discovery um, in this. So the first question is, we, we know these terms, we know it's important, but what things are actually important to measure when you're evaluating training load? And, and there is a variety of clinical commentaries, original research. And so kind of as you look at all of that as a whole from this thematic issue, what's really sticking out as the main things that are important to evaluate? You know, the, that, that's probably one of the biggest things is we have so many different things that we can measure. And trying to narrow down what's going to be the most important measurement. So, you know, if you look at the, uh, the the baseball monitoring piece, is it going to be monitoring the pitch counts, which is a uh, a na- nationwide piece, or is it going to be monitoring the amount of rest in between games, or is it going to be monitoring the actual accelerations that are occurring at the shoulder or elbow? Um, you know, that that's a decision that goes into uh, the researchers and the clinicians' backgrounds and understanding those things. So, you know, it, it's not an easy decision to to go into understanding what factors you want to measure. But I would say that's probably the, the most important part is uh, we can measure a lot of things right now. Um, what's, what is uh, the obviously the accuracy of those pieces? And then what's the reliability? What's the cost? how much, what is the cost benefit ratio on measuring those things? And then what problem is it trying to solve on those pieces? Yeah. Just to follow up on Jimmy's point there, I I think, you know, in terms of what is important to measure, I think it depends. It depends on perhaps, you know, the, the sport that you're working with, which you might want to focus on for swimming might be very different from what you would want to focus on for baseball. So I think it can be, you know, sport or or athlete specific in terms of that physical workload measure that you would want to utilize. Um, And then I I think as Jimmy alluded to, it's also important to think about what are you going to do with the information? I think what we don't want to do is just, you know, create more work and measure things just for measuring them. But how, how are you going to use this information to help guide clinical decision-making as part of the overall kind of sport medicine, sport performance team um, in terms of how to best manage uh, that athlete, that patient from a injury prevention and performance enhancement standpoint? And I think all that kind of guides then what are the right measures uh, to choose in your given scenario. So one question that I have about some of the measurement stuff is a lot of times in the research we see um, that it requires special equipment or can sometimes be um, cost prohibitive. So uh, can you talk a little bit about measuring and monitoring that a clinician could potentially do with limited resources um, to still be able to gather valuable information? You know, questionnaires is, is a great monitoring system. Um, we have some, you know, pieces of uh, articles here that are about, you know, one question or an overall, how do you feel, uh, may not be as good as, uh, you know, a little bit more detailed questionnaire. Um, phone apps that are very, um, very simple, uh, low cost um, to be able to do some of the um, overall wellness tracking type of ideas. Um, some very simple 
uh, aspects of, of different apps that can kind of on you know again on your phones that can be able to do a little bit of a of a step counter or those types of things to be able to look at your activity levels. You know, again, going back to baseball that I was involved in, uh, you know, a simple pitch count and, and accuracy or a simple throwing counter um, where somebody's just counting, you know, on a little clicker, uh, which is very, you know, inexpensive. The number of throws a pitcher has uh, in warmups, the number of pitchers has, you know, in the bullpen, the number of pitches uh, a pitcher has in the game or in between innings. Uh, and looking at all those things, is, there are definitely many capabilities to do this at what we call a low tech side um, or a no tech side. And those will be, you know, again, the accuracy may be uh, missing a little bit or the, the jazziness of it, the sexiness of it may be missing a little bit, but you still get a lot of good information from it. But it's, it's also not as easy as some people make it out to be. Um, there still takes time, effort. Uh, again, what's the cost benefit uh, of those things? Because somebody's taking the time and effort to be able to track these things. So I think one of the other questions that a lot of people have is how, this information that we gather um, and get is how has that been identified or has it been identified as injury risk factors? So although this is a young science, um, what is the science currently telling us about injury risk factors related to training load? You know, it's it's an emerging area. And I think right now what we're seeing is just generally some inconsistencies in what the research is reporting. And that could be driven by a lot of various things, such as the type of metrics that are being used to quantify training load, the, the populations that are being studied, um, the types of injuries that are being tracked and, and so forth. But I think, you know, generally what we're beginning to, to see emerge as um, as a relationship is that when an individual begins to increase their workload, you know, above which they're normally used to, to, to carrying, that might put them at a, a greater risk uh, of injury at some point down the road, essentially. How strong of an association that is, you know, how much of an increase does a, does a person have to experience in their um, acute workloads to actually sort of be at greater risk? I think all those are, are questions that still remain to be, you know, answered. Um, but it seems that when there's this big imbalance that it may predispose to injury down the road. I don't think what anyone is proposing is that when you see a person's workload begin to increase, perhaps at a rate that might suggest that they could be at risk for injury, that you, you know, shut them down and don't have them. But, but more you have that in the back of your mind as a possibility, and perhaps you need to manage them a little more, more closely, um, and, and perhaps give them a little bit more recovery time or be mindful of that during, you know, subsequent training sessions. Uh, so they don't get closer and closer to perhaps, you know, going into a position where they might actually sustain injury. Yeah, just to follow up Darren's piece is, uh, you know, there's not a one size fits all on, on this model. Um, it's not going to apply to every single individual at every single pace. Uh, I liken it to uh, monitoring cars. Uh, I got a phone call from my older son in Maine today, and he said, Dad, I can't drive. My, my coolant lights went on. And I said, well, it's probably going to be okay to go a couple miles to get some antifreeze in your car. Um, and he's deathly afraid of doing that. So he's not driving that car. So, you know, the human systems, again, we have decisions to make. These are tools that give us more information. Um, but as Darren said, it, it's not that we automatically stop and we're going to save everybody or we push through it and everybody's going to get hurt. It's, it's uh, you know, there's some art to the science on these pieces. And we're just now getting more science to go with that. But a lot of times it's been 
you know, coaches knowing when to push, when to pull back, obviously some different cycling pieces. And, um, you know, as far as, you know, where we are in the training cycles and, uh, it, we're just getting more information on these things. And it, it, again, it doesn't automatically make it better. It just gives us more pieces of information to make more informed decisions. So you talked a little bit about these spikes and how that might um, relate to uh, giving some pulling back a little bit on training or, or adjusting their training that they're doing. But can you talk about how this might apply um, post injury as somebody is beginning to return to play or as part of their rehabilitation? Well, you know, one of the things post-injury, it's always been an interesting thing to me, is that we want to get them back to, quote-unquote, pre-injury status. Now, sometimes pre-injury status is a very good thing, right? So um, they were in very good shape or they were very, you know, very fit. Um, But sometimes pre-injury status is why they got injured. And so just getting back to pre-injury status shouldn't be the goal. Um, we need to look at what's the best uh, system for them. So I think looking at, uh, you know, if we wanted, if we want to look at some things like uh, hamstring strains um, and we want to look at uh, that aspect from a strength standpoint, uh, are we back to to normal? Well, pre-injury status, what quote unquote was normal uh, may have caused the risk for injury Uh, for the workload of the hamstrings. Maybe that's what caused that. And we want to go kind of beyond those pieces. So I think one of my my concerns is always saying, well, we want to get them back to, quote, unquote, normal or pre-injury status. And and that might not be the best use of of this information, but um, it it does give us some more pieces of the puzzle to utilize in making these return to play criteria for, for different injuries. As a follow-up, I think, you know, if uh, if you're in a position where you are able to, uh, you know, consistently monitor uh, an athlete or a team's, you know, training load levels, that may also be helpful uh, during the rehabilitation because you, for that injured athlete, you know, the team is training at a certain level. And if you're monitoring that, you know what that is now, right? You know what the physical demands um, are being asked of the athletes when they're training and competing, essentially. And if you have an athlete who isn't training with the team because they're undergoing rehabilitation, you now know what they need to get back to ultimately to be unrestricted in practicing with that team. And so that may help you better sort of gauge, you know, when you will allow them to be fully unrestricted in training because if they're during rehab, you know, at a 50% deficit in training load compared to maybe what the team is doing on a regular basis even though they may be feeling pretty good, maybe you don't want to let them go completely unrestricted as soon as um, they've, you know, passed your return to sport testing assessment, whatever that looks like, but you'll want to maybe more gradually progress to get them back to that, you know, same training load level as the rest of the team. So they don't run the risk of having a setback as they, you know, uh, try to immediately ramp back up and match their, their teammates training load levels. So one question that I have is, uh, again, a a broad question, but uh, my question is, who takes ownership of this area from a clinical perspective? And I think, Jimmy, at the beginning, you talked about, you know, everyone sort of stays in their lane as far as you're used to biomechanics, so you do biomechanics. But when we're talking about such a broad issue, who really should um, or could take ownership of that? And then the second part of that question is, uh, what training or resources exist for somebody that wants to get better and learn more about load monitoring and how you use this to make clinical decisions? Well, that's a great question. First off, there's the whole uh, 
legal system uh, on these pieces. And every uh, institution and organization structure uh, can decide to put some of this information under medical or outside of medical. And the military and universities and professionals have a variety of different uh, uh, systems set up that are that are really challenging. I would say that the most important part is uh, what's going to help the individuals and the organizations, the teams to, to make informed decisions. So that means everybody has to get along and everybody has to understand each other. Uh, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Um, you know, so is there a where it should house? Well, yeah, it should house under something that's basically individual focused. You know, even when you start using the term performance, sport performance takes on a different name if we're talking about it from a rehabilitation standpoint or we're talking about it from a strength and conditioning standpoint. I firmly believe that a good strength coach knows that uh, the most important ability for an individual is availability. And I know that a medical side is saying the same thing but oftentimes they're not on the same page. So you're asking a, an easy question that uh, is not an easy answer. And from a legality standpoint, we have different organizations and unions that uh, are really concerned about whether this monitoring information can be posed back to them and, and, uh, and, and given back to them as far as who owns the data, who gets to market it, who gets to utilize it for contract negotiations, who gets to utilize it for uh, an umpteen number of things. And there's some good legal papers out there on this. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, it's a complicated issue. And that's, you know, one of the interesting things will be, I think, sort of seeing um, play itself out here over the next couple of years, um, as we're able to collect so much information um, with wearable sensors, uh, not just about, you know, a person's workload physically, but also how they're responding as well, too. So, you know, whose data it is, is a really important question. I think in the context of the, uh, you know, the support team that's taking care of that, you know, that athlete, I think in the ideal world, you know, all parties are are viewing it as information that they can all use to help better the, the care and the performance of the athlete. And so I, I, I would see that the strength and conditioning staff, the athletic training, sports medicine staff, the coaching staff could all hopefully see value of this. And if, if handled properly, you know, this could be, a, you know, the, the common set of metrics that each of the parties involved, strength and conditioning, sports medicine, the coaching staff can come together and talk around to figure out how do we, you know, best work together uh, to, to optimize these metrics, to prevent injury, to make sure the athlete is available, and then also to help them improve their, their skill set and their overall performance. But some of these key issues that Jimmy mentioned really, you know, still need to get um, hashed out um, and get everyone on the same page so that we can, you know, have those sorts of conversations and keep the, the kind of the athlete centric model and have them be the focus so that we can use this information in, in the right ways to, to get the best outcomes. So you guys put together a great issue, really looking at training load and the, the information that's out there very comprehensively, but there's still a lot of questions that need to be answered. So as you guys are kind of looking at this as a whole, what do you think are the critical questions that still need to be answered where science really needs to go for us to really use this information? 
As it relates to you know injury, I still think there's a lot of important questions that need need to be answered. Can we really use this information to, you know, really identify you know those who are at you know high risk for sta- sustaining injury if we look at the right you know training load metrics in the right way? I mean, there has been some initial evidence to suggest that that's a possibility, um, but I still think there's a lot more work that that needs to be done in this area, and then. Also, how to best use this, you know, information to kind of guide individuals as they're going through the return to sport and return to performance process to, you know, get them back to their proper, you know, uh, performance levels, but then also doing so in a way that that minimizes their risk for a for a secondary injury. I think, you know, in my mind, those are two areas where I think there's a um, a lot of area for new research um, to see how we can improve what we're doing in, in both primary and secondary injury prevention with the incorporation of various ways of monitoring and, and managing training load metrics. Yeah, just to follow up, there's been a, a couple of social media pieces out there on, uh, you know, we need randomized control trials in this area to be able to see if workload monitoring and uh, acute chronic workload ratios are really predicting injuries and so on and so forth. Um, I would go back to uh, something that Dr. Bill Garrett, who was uh, who's recently passed away, uh, and uh, he was great during my time. Uh, he was a Duke, North Carolina guy, one of those special breeds that can do both places. And uh, I remember him telling me as a as a doctoral student that uh, he has the answer to all the ACL injuries in, in women's soccer. And I remember listening and waiting and uh, so so excited about that meeting coming up. And uh, he goes, Jimmy, the easiest thing is to uh, not have him play college soccer. And I was, I was bummed. But, you know, he, he tried to make something like, okay, there's an inherent risk to things that we do. We're going to push the envelope of all these things. And it doesn't matter in this issue. You see firefighters in this issue. You see dancers. You see baseball players. You see rugby. They're all going to do the same thing. They're all going to try to get as good as they possibly can. With that, there's some inherent risk. What we're trying to do is still help them to get as good as they possibly can while trying to toe the line of, you know, quote unquote, injury versus not, um, while still trying to help them perform as best as possible. So we've talked a lot about this episode and some of the information in it. Um, And I really appreciate the effort that went into putting this together and your time today in discussing this. So as we finish up this episode, can you provide one to two sort of take-home messages for how clinicians can use this information to improve their patient outcomes? And uh, we'll start with Jimmy on that one. For me, it's getting to know your patients uh, a little bit, um, a little bit better. So it's 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 really trying to get to know who your 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 patients are. So uh, I'll give you for a for a for instance. I'm a high school baseball coach in charge of 55 baseball players when the season starts from freshmen to seniors. And I run their sport performance piece um, and and handle that side. Uh, One of the things that we do is a daily report that basically tells me how their arm soreness is on the day. And it's a very simple zero to 10 scale. We did a lot of monitoring before we did, uh, you know, IMUs on the elbow and and those types of things. And it works uh, when the kids want it to work. Um, so I would say come up with a process and system that works for you in your location. Don't just automatically go that this X, Y, Z is going to work, um, you know, because it works at this place. Know what your culture is going to work. Know what you want to do with it and how it's going to affect it. 
and then make sure that you follow through with it. If you don't believe in it, they won't believe in it. So for me, a very simple system of arm soreness on a regular basis is important. Uh, Our coaches responding with uh, pitch counts and not going kind of crazy of not so much the pitch count of the day, but the pitch count across the week. Um, Because it's something that I believe in is the overtime component, not the individual day. So as, and that's kind of my clinician hat is, is you got to have something that you believe in. And and if you don't, nobody else will. Darren, you're up. Sure. Um, Well, I think as as a, as a take-home point, I would say, I I agree with Jimmy in that if you're going to do this, you know, uh, think about all the the various factors that, that he mentioned. And, And I would also say that if you're, you know, looking to incorporate, you know, these various measures of training load in your, in your daily practice, I think as a you know good rule of thumb, it's it's good to look at I think both a type of internal load um, as well as external load measure, or if not an internal load measure, a something that gives you a sense of how they're responding to whatever the physical workload is. I think if you are looking at both of those uh, sides of the coin, if you will, you know the physical workload, whatever that metric is that makes sense for the athlete and the sport that you're working with, and then how they're responding, you can have those two sides of the equation to try and and balance out. You know, if you see a certain level of workload begins to result in a response that suggests increasing soreness and and that sort of pathway, now you know perhaps you need to do something to either, you know, modify the workload or enhance the level of recovery um, practices that they're engaging in. But if you find that you're increasing that workload and they're responding in a in a positive manner or in a consistent manner that doesn't suggest increased soreness or fatigue or whatever that sort of marker would be of a of a negative trend, then perhaps that means you can continue to to increase and build them up and they're still you know having a, a positive response and that can help you know provide some guidance for how you you know want to manage their workload from from one day to the next. So I think looking at both the kind of the loading metric as well as a response metric can can be helpful in just sort of the day-to-day management um, of the athlete. And 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 I wouldn't recommend trying to get too much into like trying to predict injury when they're going to get injured, but more use the information to guide how you want to manage that person on a day-to-day basis versus trying to, you know, worry about predicting injury at some point down the road. Well, thank you all for joining us today and for your expertise in this area and the effort that you put in in putting this issue together. Um, We really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you, Lizzie. I hope you all found this podcast informative and that you can utilize the clinical recommendations to improve patient care. That is it. That is it for today's The AT Tapes. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow the Journal of Athletic Training on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JAT underscore NATA on all three platforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us for next month's episode of the 18 Tapes.